Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Race Formula E podcast as we plough on through our off-season interviews. Um, Joining me, of course, is our paddock sniffer, Sam Smith. Uh, But this week, we're delighted to welcome back, I think we can call him a veteran of of the show, so I believe it might be his third appearance, and that is the team principal uh, of the 2023 Drivers' Championship winning outfit, Andretti Formula E. So that's Roger Griffiths. Roger, welcome back. Thank you, and uh, yeah, very happy to be back here with you. So it, it's uh, been a while, but I imagine it's still fresh in the memory. Um, how have you been luxuriating in having a, having won that championship? Uh, I mean, I always feel that... Uh, the next season starts really the day after or maybe the day after the previous one finishes. So we've, we've not certainly been sat back and in, enjoying our success um, and, and letting time pass us by. But it, it's, you know, it was a great feeling for everyone. I think personally it was a little easier to win it on the Saturday and then going into Sunday knowing that the job was already done. Um, but I think I said this uh, a, a few weeks ago that, you know, we're now reigning champions, if you like, and uh, going into the season, we'll, we'll only be reigning champions until the uh, the season gets underway and then everybody's focused on what's happening in the current season and, you know, the, the past is in the past. So we, we have to stay uh, mindful of that and I'm sure everybody has been working super hard to catch up to where we were at and... and you know, Jake's going to be running number one on the car, so he's put a big target on his back, and uh, I'm sure everybody's going to be trying to beat him. Does it change the mindset in any way? Because now you absolutely, categorically, definitively do know how to win it. Does does it that change it ever so slightly? No, I don't think so. I think personally, it just reassures me that the the path that we set out on was the right one. So uh, it, it's really about minor refinements now it's about looking at opportunities that perhaps we missed um last season looking at when you know we had that lull in the performance over the i think from uh cape town hyderabad etc where things didn't really go to to plan um and making sure that we can be a little bit more consistent um in, in situations like this i think it's somewhat unrealistic to expect that we're going to have you know the same number was it 11 podiums or whatever it was that we got um again i think the competition is going to be stronger um so you know our aim is to do the best we can and you know obviously we'd like to have a repeat of a championship but we know that's super hard and it doesn't matter whether it's formula e or other types of championships to win back to back is um, not the most straightforward thing to do. 
there's a bit of a motorsport cliche that the entrants themselves are more interested in winning the team's championship and the drivers because traditionally that's where the payout comes from but that's not really true is it no i mean uh, i i think for us winning a championship drivers or teams um that really doesn't matter um i think we would have liked to have been a bit more competitive in the team's championship um you know we, we we didn't get as much out of the second car as we'd hoped um you know and this is something that we've looked at and focused on on the uh, the off season and and really in our planning going into season 10 but uh, not for me personally uh, just to be able to say that the andretti formula e team delivered a world championship drivers or otherwise it, it doesn't matter yeah well on that on that note i mean uh, Andre Lotter, obviously one of the most experienced drivers in the series, but he added 23 points to your overall tally compared to 229 from Jake's. Now, I'm sure there's been a fair amount of analysis internally on what happened there. It can't all have just been bad luck, was it? I mean, we, I think we were, uh, ourselves and Andre were as surprised as anybody that we weren't able to get more out of that car. Um, you know, particularly the season started well in Mexico City. I'm in fourth place for him. And, uh, you know, at that point, you think, great, first and fourth. Um, this We couldn't ask for more. But I, I just, I mean, none of us really have been able to put our finger on any specific issue. I mean, we went so far as to tear the car apart, torsion test it, all those kind of things, scan it to make sure that it was dimensionally correct, to make sure we didn't have a soft chassis. Um, spent a lot of time talking to Andre, just trying to understand was there some specific thing he was really struggling with. Um, you know, maybe it is that Jake is really just that good. Um, I mean, I think he had an amount of bad luck where he was taken out of races I mean, but sometimes you make that bad luck yourself. You put yourself in the wrong spot and then you get taken out. I think Monaco was a good example of that. I mean, you know, yes, he got pushed into the wall, but, you know, should he have been in that part of the racetrack? I, you know, I, I, only he can know that. But I, I think also as you as you get a bit older and, uh, and Andre is one of the more elder statesmen within the field, I think priorities change as well. So, uh Maybe we were seeing a little bit of that. But, you know, Andre put in a huge contribution um, and was definitely part of the, the reason that Jake was so successful. But he just didn't, you know, show that in points scored. He, he developed the car, you know, helped Jake with the, the strategies and stuff. I mean, he, he put in a huge amount of work in our understanding of how Porsche works. And I think that was one of the key things that Andre delivered for us. Sam, you got any theory on this? Obviously, you've uh, worked with uh, Andre in uh, WEC as well as in Formula E. What, what do you attribute it to? Yeah, I've known Andre for well, probably 12 years or so, and I was as surprised as anyone that um, it panned out the way it did for him last season. I actually had a coffee with him in Fuji at the Fuji WEC race a couple of months ago, and one thing that he was consistent in is praising Jake very graciously and, and actually a sort of element of surprise that, that Jake was that good. So I think there's an element of what Roger said there is, is true that, that actually Jake is just on a different level really. Um, but certainly, you know, he did have a bit of bad luck. There were things that, that didn't go his way. There were a few, few silly accidents, 
But yeah, I, I think once you lose momentum, Formula E seems to accentuate the the negatives. You know, how many drivers do we see who just go on these ridiculous runs of of poor luck and um, and, and a dearth of form and point scoring? So I think it was a bit of that. And you know, he is at the end of his career as well. You know, he'll probably do another two or three seasons of of endurance racing, and he's still he's still quick enough. We know that. I mean, looking at his teammates in. At Porsche in the WEC. I mean, Lawrence Van Tour and Kevin Estra, two of the quickest, out and out quickest guys on the grid. And and Andre, you know, it, it mixes it with them. So it's it's not that he's going off the cliff or anything like that. I think it was just as Roger said, a a number of circumstances, some of which will probably you know never really be quite known, and and a fresh rule set that he he probably probably just didn't quite grasp as well as as Jake at the end of the day. Roger, you've got a, a new driver coming in, Norman Nato. It's some, maybe a little bit of a surprise to, to some observers, but um, what was it that attracted you to him and uh, how's he been settling in? I mean, uh, Norman is somebody that we, we've known quite well. I mean, in, in, in our relationship with Norman actually started a, a few years back because if you recall, um, Antonio Felix da Costa drove for us for a couple of years and you know, both he and Norman are managed by the same person. So, you know, Norman's name came up periodically and we'd, we'd had the opportunity to speak to him on a few occasions, never really about a drive. Um, but, you know, as we were looking around, it was a little bit of an odd season contract-wise in terms of the contract cycles. Um, and I think you find that periodically that you've got this sort of overlap. You've got half the grid that's on, you know, a two-year cycle, but, you know, others were on a two-year cycle, but one year out of phase. And and the other thing that we've seen, and this has been something that's come up more and more frequently, is that we we were adamant that Formula E was going to be the focus and, uh, you know, no other program could get in the way of Formula E. And that started to eliminate any number of drivers because it became apparent that once we were talking to them, oh, well, I've got a WEC program, or I've got this, I've got that. And, uh, yeah, in in this particular situation, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to miss that race. And having dealt with that with Andre, and I think that may have been one of the the reasons why that we, we just didn't get the most out of him. We had this sort of dual focus. We just said, we're not going to do this again. And, and, and Norman was one of the few drivers that um, understood that and recognised it and said, no, I'm fully committed to to Formula E and, and, you know, would be fully committed to you. And we went beyond just saying, oh, it's, it's races only. It's no, Formula E is the full focus. We don't have a problem with you doing another programme, but you just have to re- remember that, you know, whether it's a, a simulator session, a test, or, or whatever it might be, that is the priority. So, uh, sorry, Roger, to interject. There was a guy at Bahrain last week in the Jota car. Looks quite a lot like Norman. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but but it's very clear um, that where his responsibilities lie and what his priorities are. So, you know, yes, he can. We've always said, yeah, you can drive other cars, but you have to understand. That the, you know, if there's any compromise, Formula E is number one priority, and uh, you know that that's been well understood. So I don't have to have any concerns about you know other programs and things, and you know 
clashes won't be a problem for us. So this is this is something we've been very adamant about. I mean, Michael as a driver has always encouraged his drivers to drive other things because he feels that that makes them better. Gives them, you know, they, they don't have big lulls coming out of the cockpit. They stay race ready. They stay race hungry. Um, but they just have to understand where the priorities are. And, and, and that's, that's something that was very clear um, in our early conversations with Norman. I mean, he's obviously a race winner. And, and as, a, as we saw the, the season unfold last year, um, he, you know, he started to get some good results. We also talked about some of the mistakes that he made and, um, you know, to, to really to get to the bottom of why these things were happening. We openly talked about his sort of one-year career, if you like, at, at multiple different teams and got got to know why that was the case. So he, he seems genuinely motivated to be given that real opportunity um, I mean, he's going to be in a championship winning car. Um, he, so far, his relationship with Jake has been really, really good, both in the car, out of the car. Um, he certainly brought a lot to the team. Um, you know, he, he's a he's a hard worker. He's very disciplined. I think he he's relishing the opportunity that we have given him. Um, you know, he's, he's already been on our simulator multiple times in even just the short amount of time he's been with us. And he's really been, you know, a, a strong resource for us to, uh, you know, push along our own development program. So, I mean, so far, so good. Nobs, that's one of the key things in Formula E is that the amount of on-track testing time is limited. Um, we had those Slightly interrupted days in Valencia. It was relatively low-key for you guys. Were you satisfied with the programme that you did? Yes, we were. I mean, uh, I was looking at it, um, you know, I saw the question that had been posed by yourselves, and I think low-key for us was exactly what we wanted. We didn't need any drama. We didn't need, um, we didn't need to set the world alight. What we needed to do was to show a strong improvement over last year. And if you look at where we ended up last season, in Valencia, I mean, we came out of Valencia like, oh no, this is not good. Um, you know, we were p p nowhere. We were in 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 the teens in terms of the overall order, and whereas and really struggling to get on top of the car. So, you know, the win that came in Mexico was a complete surprise to us. Um, so, for us in Valencia, this you know, a few weeks ago. We were encouraged by the performance. I mean, Jake sat at the top of the timesheet for a long time on that final day. Um, you know, we, we, we're starting to see that Valencia is actually becoming a little bit more important than perhaps it once was. As we move to tracks like Portland and, and if we end up in somewhere like Mazzano for the uh, Italian E-Prix, um, the, these are tracks that have got similar characteristics so we, we are starting to be a bit more focused around how we treat this but I think what you saw was you know three of the four Porsche cars were you know there are thereabouts I mean the Jaguar t uh, powered cars are obviously strong but I, I think we came away with you know we'd work through a our test list, I mean, we've been having this Valencia test list, if you like, grow through the course of last season. And, you know, we got through all of that. We got one or two new members of staff on board. Um, so they were working out how they fit within the team. We got a few new 
procedural things that we wanted to do, um, got through all of that. So for us, it was a, a pretty productive, you know, we kept out of the limelight and, you know, just happy with the way it went. Sam, that's a, an interesting point that, that Roger raises there, that the fundamentals of the championship are evolving now away from that inner city street racing that was the main thrust at the beginning to more permanent street circuits. Is that putting more um, relevance into that Valencia test and and making it a, a, even more valuable to, to get the most out of those days? Yeah, potentially. Yeah, I, I think potentially it is. Um I mean, the, the latest indication is that the, the the deal with Mizano is done for a doubleheader in April. So it looks like there will be a Valencia-type race from 2021. And, and as we know, um, somebody who had a very good weekend then was, was Jake Dennis then in his rookie season. I think it was only about his fifth race, wasn't it, that he that he won so yeah I, I would say so and I don't know if that was at the forefront of, of all the teams I mean there seemed to be a bit of a variation on how seriously the test at Valencia was taken by by some of the teams um, so that 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 could be that could be one of the threads of of, of next season because of course we're going to go to Shanghai as well which is a, a permanent circuit too so all of a sudden you're talking about potentially 40% of the tracks or even maybe 50 if you count some of the permanent facilities like like Mexico City um, and you know that we, we talked about this on the last pod didn't we there are actually very few genuine city centre gnarly street tracks left I mean can you count Monaco as one I mean it's billiard smooth and it's not really a street circuit although obviously it is by Apart design from the, the, the barriers I would argue that it's not anymore well, yeah, quite. So, um, you know, the only one I can think of really is is Hyderabad, which has got its own challenges with um, with the dust on the track. I mean, it's got to be better this year. I mean, it was absolutely dreadful last season. I think there was even a colony of bats at turn three that were leaving droppings on the track. So, uh, yeah, that was that was all fairly uh, novel. So, I mean, I, I quite like that. I quite like these sort of outside variables uh, on street tracks and. But I, it just feels like the championship's moving away from it, and of course, what that means is that the teams and manufacturers have to have to address that, and they have to uh, they have to work on on different setups and and different strategies to get the best out of the car on on more permanent tracks. Uh, Roger, I understand that Porsche were out testing the Mallorca um, the other week, which I'm or this week rather, which I'm guessing is on the airport um, that they turn into a temporary facility occasionally. Have you had any feedback on that? Well, I mean, I think a number of the manufacturers are there and, and they're actually out all through this week. Um, I think Porsche are actually running potentially three days. Um, uh, I have, I've had some feedback. Um, it's, it's, I think there's a, a sort of a split focus. There's some work being done with the booster charges and they're also running some of the uh, proposed upgrades for um, Gen 3 Evo. So, you know, revised tyres from Hankook and running with the um, the FPK engaged in drive mode. Uh, we're, we're anticipating a catch-up call with Porsche later this week. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll hear more. I mean, the initial feedback we've had from them is so far so good. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We don't actually have anybody out there with them at the moment, but uh, they're they're ploughing through their, their test list and I think, you know, they're making some decent progress. How, um, how much do we really know about what, how that Gen 3 Evo is going to work and particularly sort of what we might see in terms of performance gains? Um, 
I, I mean, I, I know what is desired, what they're hopeful of in terms of lap time improvement and where they think some of that will come from. Um, I think, you know, the challenge they've got now is turning that into reality. Um, you know, that there, there are different option tires out there that they're looking at that they're, that they're evaluating and, you know, do we go for a tyre that, yes, it can generate a, a lap time improvement, but it's a really sharp peak and then there's a huge fall off. Um, so I think that they're looking at consistency as well as just the peak lap time. Um, Bodywork, yes, there's some upgrades coming on that and there's going to be a likely a, a, a different visual identity on the car, but we haven't, haven't seen those parts yet. So I think that's going to be more of an aesthetic thing than perhaps a performance differentiator. I think the, the FPK in drive mode is going to be something that could, you know, bring a decent step forward in performance. Um, you know, it, I think this is sort of an interim stage and potentially, you know, uh, an indication of how much gain that they, we could see from, you know, the next step in Formula E with a Generation 4 car. But I, I think it's encouraging that they're out there you know, reasonably early testing these things. So it does give people the opportunity to, uh, you know, address anything else that we, we may find that, you know, comes as a perhaps an unintended consequence of, of these performance upgrades. Are, are they um, trialling the dynamic charging again while they're out there? Is that- yeah, I believe they've been out there with the boost chargers. Um, you know, obviously we didn't get as much done in Valencia as we had hoped. Um, you know, even us as a team, I mean, we went through the, I guess, the procedural aspects, but we, we hadn't actually done a boost charge per se. Um, I, I think we were all geared up to do that. And then obviously situations changed with the fire and that. So uh, there's still a lot to learn um, ahead of the introduction. Where, where do you think we are on that? Is, it, is everyone sort of agreed on how it's going to work or is there still some debate to be had? Uh, I, I don't think there is alignment at this stage. Um, I think our, our primary concern and focus is ensuring that we have um, 32 race-ready batteries or races available for us to go to Mexico. Um, certainly coming out of Valencia, everything got pulled out of cars and that you know, pen, it was all pending the investigation into the fire and you know, what, what caused it, what was the lead up to it, what was the initial fault that occurred. Um, so I know there's a lot of work to be done to to get through all of that. And, and from the team perspective, manufacturer perspective, we want to ensure that we're ready to race uh, in Mexico and that there's no compromises in reliability there. I think once we get through that um, piece, then I think we can turn to the, the boost charging and but there's still a lot to be discussed around not only the you know technically how is this going to work um, to make sure that all of the associated systems um, you know whether it's the charger flap whether it's ensuring that we can get into the pit boxes okay whether it's ensuring that uh, procedurally it's it's you know something that's safe to do but then there's also the sporting aspect and you know, we, we don't want to turn the um, the race into a bit of a lottery as to how that uh, how that plays out. I mean, we had intended to 
to run through the race scenarios and do boost charging and just see what happens uh, in, in Valencia. And I, I think some teams took it seriously. We were one of them. We, we, you know, we sat stationary for the requisite amount of time. Other teams didn't do that. So I, I still think there's, there's a lot to be learned. I know that there was a, a, an idea floated that perhaps we could do something leading into Mexico City or perhaps even staying on a day after Mexico City to, to trial some things, but I, I've not seen any concrete plans around that. I know Dieter Gas is looking at it. Um, it's something that's high on his agenda list, but uh, I, I don't, from where I sit, I don't see us ready to introduce it at the start of the season. Will it come later? I think that really depends on, you know, what they find over the coming days in, in Mallorca and, and also what, the, you know, their state of readiness coming into Mexico City. Uh, that's interesting. I was going to ask if you're a betting man. Would we have it in Mexico? But I think you've given your answer there. Uh, it'd be a nice idea, I guess, if you could stay on there uh, to give it a sort of uh, another live scenario test just to check where everything is. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mexico City would have been one of the places it would have been, let's say, more straightforward to introduce because you are in the, the permanent garage facilities. You've got a wide pit lane. You've got, you know, the, the, the facilities are right, if you like. Some of the other places we go... Um, you know, the pit lane is a bit narrower, uh, not really designed to be used as an active pit lane for, for pit stops and things like that. I mean, you know, I, I think back to places like Rome where you've got people, you know, pitted opposite each other. And, and you know, how would that work? I, I also wouldn't, wouldn't, to, uh, wouldn't be the person to call Hyderabad for this. I mean, with all respect to, to Hyderabad, I think we're we're anticipating things will be much better from an infrastructure point of view, but certainly uh, I think if it's not ready for Diria, where you've got a natural um, sporting framework there with a double header, yeah. then I, I can't see it coming on until, you know, possibly, well, possibly Monaco time, I would think, um, would be the soonest, because you wouldn't choose to run it at Hyderabad certainly um on the basis of last season's event there so yeah it, it could be well into the season um uh, but let's wait and see let's see how things go at mallorca this week and uh and hopefully um they can get a, a definitive solution because it just feels like a bit of a purgatory at the minute with with this uh this new innovation yeah i mean uh, you know uh, no one could have anticipated what we experienced in valencia and uh you know that certainly set people back a little bit so one of the things we've always um, loved about uh, Formula E is the way which independents uh, can race as competitively as manufacturers. And indeed, we saw last year two customer teams winning the two titles. But none of the manufacturers are in there to be beaten by teams that they supply. So how is that relationship with Porsche? There must have been some times when it got a little bit touchy. No, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we certainly saw, even in London, um, you know, Pascal and Jake running side by side. And that was a little closer than perhaps we all, all would have liked. I mean, the relationship, I would say, by and large through season nine was one of, you know, there were some growing pains. Um, you know, there, there was a healthy respect between uh, between us and them. Uh, you know, I think we demonstrated early on in uh, Mexico City, in Diria, when we did the joint podium photographs, it, it is a really close cooperation. You know, we speak continuously. I mean, on the 
you know, the engineering and operational side, I think it's daily. Um, we're certainly involved in many of the uh, engineering activities that they they do, that they lead. Um, there was some silly stuff that got out in social media that, you know, I'll hold my hand up that we didn't we didn't deal with uh, correctly um, or, or as quickly as it needed to be done. Uh, we certainly talked about it a lot, but I think there was a little bit more that we could have been done. We've spent a lot of time in the off season talking about all of the various issues that went through the season, um, and we we came up with with a plan and we decided, you know, between us and Porsche, we talked about how we wanted to work together. What did we really desire? What did we want to get from this relationship? We we recognise that if we want to beat these. Um, other manufacturers with their strong customer teams, we, we need to cooperate. Um, and in Valencia, we actually got both teams together, the, the, the full squad that was in the Andretti garage and in the Porsche garage. And we, we did a an all-team meeting, if you like. And we had messages from, from Michael and from Thomas Loudenbach talking about what the desired goals were of Porsche Motorsport and Andretti Formula E. Um, we talked about that this was something that, you know, was believed in by the, you know, the, the owners, the executives of the, the both organisations. Um, and then uh, we all went out to dinner on that, that Monday night in Valencia at a local restaurant and it had a really good time. And uh, I think we were able to reset. And, uh, you know, I through the rest of that Valencia week, I saw really strong cooperation, not only between the team members, but also the four drivers, you know, and some of this was led by the Pascal and Antonio and some of it was led by Norman and Jake. So I, I really feel that we made some strong progress through the um, the summer months in, in sorting out some of the things that did happen. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully going into to season 10, you know, we've established what the ground rules are and, you know, how we want to work together. And hopefully that's a, a really good productive step forward. I guess you're all in agreement that if you are going to take on and beat the four Jaguar powered cars, that's the only real way forward. And from what we saw at Valencia, I think it's pretty clear they got, they are going to be your main rivals for the titles. Yeah, I, I you know, they, they came on really strong. Um, you know, second half of the championship, we have to work closely together. I mean, we, I, th- I think the way we sort of phrased it, look, we've got to worry about beating 18 other cars before we start trying to beat each other. So, you know, that's our focus. We've got to work together. We've got to get everything uh, um, aligned, um, make the most of the, the track time that we have, because as, as mentioned before, we have such little track time. And, uh, you know, we need, we need to be very collaborative, but we also need to recognise that the drivers are there to race and they're not there to say, oh, after you, no, after you. So, you know, we, we need to have good competition on the track and, you know, strong collaboration and cooperation off track. Roger, is this uh, an exclusive to state that Jake and Pascal are going to send each other Christmas cards this year? <laughs> I don't know if we'll go that far, but uh, they, they certainly... I think they've cleared the air. Um, you know, they, they both had the opportunity to talk. Um, you know, they'll have their differences of opinions. They'll see things differently. Um, but I, I think, you know, there is a, a, 
an element of respect now. And, you know, I was encouraged by what I was encouraged by what I saw in, in Valencia. And I think they understand that to be successful, they need, they need each other and they need to work together. Earlier on, you, um, you mentioned Portland, which is going to be the U S race again, out of this next season, season 10, obviously when formerly started off, we had the, uh, race on the west coast in long beach and it was long been a desire to race out there alongside the east coast where we had the new york race um you're calling us from california at the moment and i'm not entirely sure when this episode will go out but we are smack bang in the middle of potentially las vegas grand prix oversaturation firstly how's how's that um going down over there and what do you think or what would you like formerly's future in the u.s to be I mean, as far as the Las Vegas race is going on, I mean, I think if you're outside of Las Vegas, you probably don't know anything about it. I mean, certainly nobody, <laughs> certainly nobody here in Los Angeles is talking about it. Um, you know, I know one or two people that have been out to Vegas in the in recent weeks and have, have talked about. You know, you don't recognise the place at the moment. Complained a lot about hotel prices. I know that much. Um, and how the, the the Vegas infrastructure that's going in place is, you know, to some extent diminishing the the enjoyment of their trip to to Vegas. But you know, the, these races don't just happen overnight. And I appreciate that there's time to, um, you know, it takes time to put everything together. And I, I'm I'm sure this is what Formula E faces when they try and build a a street circuit in Zurich or. Uh, in Paris and you know some other places that we've had challenges with local communities, um, but yeah, it's not it's not making a huge dent. I think there's more talked about the Las Vegas race in Europe than there is out here in the US. Um, but I think that's also to some extent a reflection of open wheel motorsport in the US currently. Um, going back to the other part of the question, I mean, I, I feel that the US is big enough to be able to host you know at a minimum two races i think we should be looking at one that's you know on the west coast like you mentioned we had long beach for a couple of seasons we've had portland last year portland this year um you know that there's a lot of activity around putting together a los angeles race um so that would be you know great to have but i think we also need a race on the on the east coast um not necessarily in New York, and I'm not sure New York is the right venue for motorsport, but, you know, maybe somewhere like Atlanta uh, would be a better venue. So, uh, you know, if you, if you look in Europe, I mean, you've got, you know, a number of races that are probably within, you know, 500 to 1,000 kilometers to each other. And here in the US, we're talking about races that are, you know, 7,000 kilometers apart. So I'm sure that there's plenty of room within people's calendars to uh, to fit them in yeah absolutely and um there are certain pockets as you well know within the us where there's a great motorsport tradition and and tapping into that you could really you know, cement that racist place within the, the hearts and minds of the locals there yeah i mean we saw that in um in portland um for the the formula e race i mean people were queuing to get into the circuit first thing in the morning and uh you know that never seen anything like it it was interesting i, I actually went back to portland for the indycar race 
um, you know, a few weeks later, and people were still talking about the Formula E event. So I think they were so impressed by what they saw, um, you know, and everyone was looking forward to Formula E coming back the following year. So what, what, how do you check the temperature of uh, Formula E at the minute then? Obviously, we've had some news over here that Channel 4 won't be showing it anymore. ProSieben in, in Germany, which is a, I think is a bit of a blow, certainly in terms of a free-to-air audience. We're going into the 10th season, and this is like seriously established as a, as a sporting entity now. Where do you think we are? I mean, I think all of the... You know, with the exception of the, you know, what you've just mentioned, I mean, I think the signs are generally positive. Um, we had a, a Formula E retreat, team principles retreat, if you want to call it that, um, three weeks ago, just prior to Valencia, where we all got together with Formula E and the FIA and we talked about what the future uh, looks like. We, we'd encourage them to set some, some targets so we could look at, you know, real positive progress hopefully and and to really be able to you know reflect on a year and just to make sure that we were heading in the right direction i think at the time the news about proceben had not hit um but you know they have some aggressive goals for um what they want to achieve but i think what we have to be mindful of is that we don't just sign up any old tv deal which maybe gets us the numbers and it's that good, uh, you know, that old story of, you know, quality versus quantity. And, uh, you know, what we're looking for is good TV in the right markets, good eyeballs that, you know, you can go to investors, you can go to sponsors and say, you know, this is why you need to be part of Formula E. I, I mean, I think we are starting to see the, the turnaround in the sponsorship market that's been somewhat suppressed, you know, in the post-COVID era. Uh, we're starting to see some positive movement there, which, you know, from trying to run a team perspective is is something that's really, really necessary. So Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that, you know, that, that there are there's always going to be speed bumps in the road. There's always going to be bad news here and there. It can't always just be positive. But I, I think, you know, what we're seeing under Jeff Dodds is rain is, is you know, a lot of good momentum, good positive stories coming out new fresh ideas the team seems more engaged i would say at formula e than i've seen them in a while so yeah i am I'm, I'm encouraged by what i'm seeing and hearing and obviously I, I, back in the days when i was working at formula e, I, I i was always slightly bemused given i thought the the, the media consumption landscape have changed by how much stock they put on terrestrial tv deals i thought we'd we'd moved beyond that and things were all about streaming and mo- more access or whatever is, th- is there an argument to be made that you know with the formula e's reputation for being innovators that maybe now is a time just to to look at a new model well i think we've all recognized that terrestrial tv is or linear tv is struggling to some extent it don't, doesn't matter what sports property you're involved with we are seeing a, a contraction in the, the consumption. Um, but, you know, that also is in a line with, you know, some of the audience profiles that we're looking at and, and the way that they they view their, their entertainment. And I think we will see more people looking at stuff online. I think, you know, the deal that they've done with Roku out here in the US is, is going to be an interesting model 
Um, you know, we're going to be the first major sports property that Roku is going to show. And, and I think that that will give us really great insight into, you know, the direction that we should head in the future. Good stuff. Um, we can't have a representative of uh, Andretti on and, and not ask about the F1 project, but I'm not expecting any exclusive from you. But is Formula E a complementary uh, project if the Formula One thing does get the go ahead? I, I mean, I, I see, you know, whether it's any of the the projects that um, Andretti does. I mean, we, we're they're core to who Michael is. Um, you know, we're, we're fully focused on motorsport. I would hate to think that any of the programs that we do are negatively impacted by uh, a potential Formula One operation. I, I think it, they would be additive. Um, you know. Even Formula E, I mean, 10 years now we've been doing it. it it's become one of our core core programs. Um, you know, so we, we, we're focused on building a very strong foundation. Um, you know, the, the programs to some extent run independently. But, you know, when you've got Michael at the helm of all of it, uh, there, there's obviously some crossover between what we do. I would hope that, you know, there are some learnings that we have on the Formula One side that could potentially cross over into Formula E and, and vice versa with Formula E, you know, showing the way to some extent to with some of the things that the Formula One team could learn from. So I, I'm hopeful that they all can coexist in harmony. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of water to go under the bridge with on the F1 programme to see, to see how that pans out. Well, good stuff. Yeah, we look forward to seeing how... Uh... How that all evolves is going to be a very interesting thing and, and something I think that will keep the uh, the news agenda rolling on. Formula One's amazing for that, how, uh, how it can sustain its own gravitational force. But um, Roger, we wish you all the very best for the forthcoming season and thank you once again for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
So, um, Sam, it was always good to have Roger on. Some um, fabulous insight there, and uh, it'll be very interesting. I mean, if if all of Andretti's plans come together, that that's going to be like the super team for all super teams. You know, it's going to make Travelling Wilburys look like they were a bunch of nobodies. Anyway, um, keeping on to our uh, Gen Z zeitgeist cultural references there. So, bit of news roundup. Uh, Phil Charles. Uh, he's left Jaguar. Where's he go? First of all, who is he and where's he going to? Yeah, well, a bit of context needed here. Phil Charles joined Jaguar as their technical uh, guru, their technical director back in 2017. He had a over a decade's worth of experience with Renault and Toro Rosso in Formula One. So he came with a very, a very accomplished CV and he was one of the, I suppose, not not necessarily high profile, but I think one of the most respected TDs in the paddock, extremely clever man who, uh, who I spoke to on a number of occasions during the seasons, a very engaging guy, very uh, driven by the technology within Formula E and enthusiastic about it, uh, which after a decade in Formula One, you know, is, 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 is quite something really. Um, he was at the cutting edge of Jaguar's design philosophy and, and bringing the uh, number of cars to the, to the grid for Jaguar. Uh, very influential and he very surprisingly uh, has left Jaguar Um, this caught most of the paddock completely unawares he was in Valencia and uh, that was his last um, his last tangible uh, work with the the company with Jaguar TCS Racing now it's it's not officially been known where he's going yet or or communicated but the the big favourite is that he will be in black and gold next season with uh, DS Penske which in itself is a double surprise because I think most people would assume that possibly the only manufacturer that you would leave uh, someone of Jaguar's standing for would, would be Porsche. But it, in fact, seems to be the other way in that he's going to DS Penske. I mean, there are some dots to be joined here. Number one being that he worked with John Eric Verne. He was uh, Jev's engineer back in 2013, I believe, uh, before he took a, a more rounded sort of chief engineering role the year after. So, uh, you know, that that is that is a significant shift and nobody knows when he's going to start, but we expect to see him in the paddock in new colours next season. And I think from Jaguar's perspective, um, having spoken to their, their PR department, uh, it's certainly been portrayed as a, a mutual or amicable decision for, for Phil to go and do a new challenge but you know it it leaves them on the eve of a season that appears in some ways to be opening up for them you know they know they've got if not the best package certainly the joint best package with Porsche and they're in a really good position now with with two of the the best drivers in the championship and Mitch Evans and and Nick Cassidy to finally finally execute a, a title which they so so hanker after so not an ideal start for them, but you know, from their perspective, they'll certainly say they've got strength in depth technically. They they have, you know, they've got. If they, who's who's going to be the new TD? Then they promote them internally. They're not they're not going for a, a mega star. I, I they haven't it. disclosed that yet. I mean, I think this happened. I, you know, certainly high management level will have known this for for a number of weeks, if not months, that this was going to be uh, Phil's move. So you'd have thought that they would have a plan B in. Uh, uh, you know, well into to, to be in action right now. I mean, they they have very capable people such as Patrick Curry there. Obviously, we know the senior team there of, of James Barkley and, and Gary Eckerold and, and and Craig Wilson as well from 
WAE side of things. So, you know, they have a solid senior team, but, um, you know, Phil's, I think Phil's quite some big shoes to fill. So, as it were, let's see. I think, I think we'll, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see what's been communicated officially, uh, but, but further down the line. But this is, this is part of a lot of change at Stellantis. Obviously, in the last show, we talked about James Roster leaving his role, and there's, there's even more stuff going on there, isn't there? Yeah, and I, I believe uh, on, on James that we're going to see him uh, in front of the camera a bit next uh, season. Oh, good. James I think he'll be good be, at that. Yeah, I think contributing to, to Formula E TV production. So we expect to see James with uh, the likes of Karun and Dario and Alan McNish as a as an expert on uh, on some of the some of the broadcasts, which will be great. Uh, and let's not forget that he's only in Formula E because of you, V to B. Well, I will never let him forget. So, <laughs> if our uh, listeners yeah. don't know, he was invited <laughs> to the first Formula E race by you. So, there you go. Um, yeah, I, Maserati MSG have not confirmed who their new team principal is yet. I, I believe that they're talking to two or three potentials there. Uh, so that is expected in the next few weeks. Who's going to replace James there? But there are changes. Uh, one that we do know of is that Thomas Chevouche, who was the uh, program director for Stellantis Motorsport, is moving on. And that the hot rumour is that he's going to take up a position at the FIA. Alessandro Ciliberti, who was the program manager for Gen 3 and the, the technical sort of uh, boss at the FIA from a Formula E perspective, is moving on. We believe she's moving to Formula 1. This is no way saying that Toma is going to take uh, that specific job, but we do believe that he's going to work with the FIA and join up with his old boss there, Xavier Mestalampinon, who was the... The, the, the project lead and the technical chief at DS for a number of years through Gen 1 and some of Gen 2. So lots of moves going on. We're hearing of others, which we can't really go into at the moment, but certainly you should be able to read some of those in uh, in the remaining weeks as we as we get ready for Mexico City in January. Obviously, we spoke uh, quite length with Roger about the uh, the test in Mallorca. He mentioned that the other manufacturers are there. Anything else to add? Obviously, those the, the, the new tyre is potentially interesting, but that's not that's just for the Evo car, right? They're not going to bring that forward in order to bring lap times down a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's the, the, they're going to stick with what they used last year for for the second season of this homologation so the next one will be what they're testing today in fact so details are a bit sketchy we know some of the drivers that have been driving for the manufacturers and the actual test is tomorrow so this will be the 16th of november that it's taking place at, at mallorca you don't um, tell them how the sausage is made sam this this you know, we're bang on the money here of course yeah yeah <laughs> you know we're <laughs> we, we know what's going on even you know i've, I've got my uh, i've got my people behind the bins and uh, in the in the in the uh, in the foliage at the uh, side of the track in Mallorca, so we know what's going on. I mean, as, as far as I know, the the tyres are not the same that ran with the Gen Beta car that Jake Hughes and, and Lucas Degrassi oh, okay. uh, tried in that record-breaking attempt, at, a successful record-breaking attempt at, at London XL. This is a different product from Hankook. Um, I, I imagine that they've got more than one there, so they've probably got a couple of variations that they'll use in the test. All the manufacturers bar Neo or ERT, sorry, I've done it again, haven't I? ERT. It's going to take a while getting used to that. Racing Technologies <laughs> team, apologies to them. Yes, ERT are, are not actually there. I believe that some personnel from the team are, but a car is, is not there. So we've got we've got Nissan, Jaguar, Porsche, 
uh, Mahindra and DS taking part in this test. And uh, yeah, you'll be able to read on the hyphenrace.com uh, very soon about what what transpired at that test. But the you know the assumption is that there will be there will be a performance leap. And as Roger stated, that the front uh, the front powertrain uh, MGU will be will be active. Let's say uh, during that test. So. We'll have to see what the lap times are if there's a, a a big chunk there, but you'd imagine as well that there'll be a bit more degradation on these uh, these presumably well, softer tyres. I mean, having having the front tyres power has got to change the, the demands on the tyres quite significantly, right? So um, I would imagine they've got a few different versions there just to, to see how they deal with that. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, you know, having a bit more deg and a bit more interesting tyres in terms of how they perform over a race is, is much needed. You know, we need to get that sort of vehicle dynamic performance and testing the skills of the drivers and, and how to manage the rubber a bit more rather than these extraordinarily uh, durable, let's say, tyres that Hancock uh, kind of had to had to bring in for their first season uh, or their first two seasons in Formula E. So, yeah, let's hope that it's uh, we get a bit more of a, an interesting uh, dynamic with the tyres. I think we pretty much covered off all bases about the uh, boost charging um, with uh, with Roger there, unless you've got anything more specific to add. Not particularly, no. But, you know, again, they've got some extra time in the in the next few days at Mallorca, so yeah, let's hope they get on top of it. I mean, there's there's really no way that they can they can ask the teams to go to Mexico City with so little testing of this thing. I mean, just from a safety point of view, more than anything, uh, I just don't see it really coming on until the earliest Riyadh. But I think even then, it might be a tad too early. Uh, and then the next um, the next double header opportunity will be what we assume will be Mizano. So that might be a natural place to do it because it's obviously there's a there's a permanent infrastructure in the pits there. There's a wide pit lane and it, and it could be the ideal place to uh, get this thing uh, finally into the sporting format for Formula E. Sam, you can't just segue into a calendar update like that. You know, we've got to have the, the drum roll and, and, and whatever. So it, it's a done deal now, is it, that the Italian race is, is going to um, Mizano where... I've only been once and it was foggy and there was about three laps and then everything was cancelled. So of, of the hundred and whatever it is, 10 tracks on my track list, it's not the most uh, star-studded one. Well, our, our sources indicate that a, a deal has been reached with Mizano, whether it's been signed or not, we don't know. Uh, prior to this, we ran a story about Vallelunga and, and the um, the ACI, which is the, the, the governing body for national motorsport in Italy, were making lots of noise about Vallelunga being the preferred option. And, okay, you know, Vallelunga is the closest circuit to Rome. I was going to say, it's notionally Rome, but, but it's still the way it's still that actually, Airport's notionally in London. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, there's a fearful concept, a race at Luton Airport. Um, although they did manage to burn down a uh, an entire car park, didn't they, recently? So maybe it could be fun. Uh, anyway, in terms of Vallelunga, I think that's quite fanciful. Um there's a lot of political stuff going on, I think, with between Formerie and Vallelunga and Mizano and Imola at the moment. But it seems, I think, Mizano is the hot favourite to uh, to have a race. What they're going to call it, I don't know. What would you call it? The Adriatic E Prix or something? Uh, Adriatic. I, I think they did. They used to did that. Used to also have the San Marino 
sobriquet and MotoGP back in the day. It could have done, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. my MotoGP uh, knowledge is, isn't strong. No, I've although got, I do, I've got I, vague. I mean, you know, as much as anywhere's near San Marino, it's, it's not that far. <laughs> I, I do know that it's called the Circuit Marco Simoncelli after it the is now, uh, yes. yeah, the 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 the, uh, the rider who obviously left uh, left the party way too soon so it's quite nice when you go there I've been there a few times and there's great big sort of murals of, of Marco there so it's a nice lasting tribute to him it's a, it's a pretty place and there'll be, um, it'll be a nice weekend to be had um, it's just not a Formula E circuit you know uh, or at least not formally circuit as I recognise formally. Well, uh, let, let's try and give it the benefit of the doubt. They've got a lot to play with there. There's lots of variations on the track, so there's different configurations that can be used. So let's hope there's a better um, a better outcome than Puebla and, and Valencia. Uh, there has to be, really, in terms of uh, getting a, a sort of challenging track and one that gives a good race. So, yeah, the hope is that they'll do that there and they'll do it at Shanghai. Um, and the other thing which we picked up from a calendar perspective is that the, the rumours of having Jakarta bolted onto the end of the season in August are, are now dead, that, that actually Jakarta won't. And I think everybody's pretty, pretty pleased with that. I, I, I got, I've got to say, yeah, Formula E running into August, just that's just all sorts of wrong, no, I think. No, nobody wants to be doing that, especially hauling everything over to, to Indonesia for, for a weekend. So, but I'm also hearing that, that Jakarta could be back on the 25 calendar. I think there's a, a third uh, iteration of the event that's needed uh, for 25 there. And the other one is the possibility of Portland being a doubleheader. Well, that makes complete sense, though, doesn't it? I mean... It, it, it... Yeah, going all the way to Oregon, yeah. And uh, I spoke to Sebastian Buemi actually in Valencia, and he said that would be a, you know, that would be a just a no-brainer to do that, going all the way over to the west coast of the U.S. I think in his rather selfish hope, he was hoping that that would usurp a Berlin doubleheader, meaning it'd free him up for the WEC oh, race yeah. at Spa at the same <laughs> weekend. But you know, we know how Seb's mind yeah, works, <laughs> calculated professional. <laughs> so, uh, but no, I think certainly Portland has got a chance of having a doubleheader next year, which you know we were we were both there last year. Where we and it'd be fine i think it'd be good for the fans to to get two races over a weekend yeah and i think um running a race there where there is a distinct difference in either um race length or power amount of power they have would would really add something to it you know we did see perhaps the concept of peloton racing taken to the extreme there but equally it was you know when we went and qualifying and watching them coming through that final corner it was it was a really great spectacle yeah. so yeah it's nice twitchy yeah, it was so more of that. I would uh, be quite happy with. Indeed, yep. I think it's. Uh, I think for looking further down the line, we we mentioned it with Roger a bit, but I'm also hearing that the potential of a Los Angeles race in 25 is is looking still looking quite strong. So we we could end up with a, a West Coast race and a a North. What would we, what would we call it? North uh, West Northern Seaboard. Is Northern that what it's seaboard. called? I don't yeah, know. I mean, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's uh, grunge land, isn't it? Let's let's face it. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. what we what we know and love grunge music for so, over there. Uh, and and then there's even talk as well of of possibly trying to get a, a third race for further down the line. And uh, yeah, it gives gives a nice little insight into where Formula E believe that they they can make some big inroads into. 
I suppose. It's interesting that he offered up Atlanta. Is that that something that's been on the radar? Obviously, Phoenix has been um, mentioned a a couple of times, and um, I met some delegates from there when in Portland. Atlanta's an interesting one. Yeah, I'd not heard that to be honest. I mean, the only two that I've heard in the US, apart from what we've just talked about, are Phoenix and Houston was on the radar for for a while. But uh, yeah, Atlanta isn't one that I that I'd heard of, but. Alberta Longo is quite fond of saying, you know, 30, 35 cities are all constantly talking to him. And I'm sure that's true. But obviously, you've got a big variance in the seriousness of, of putting the races on and the finance and the politics and all the other things, all the other boxes that have got to be ticked. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the LA around the stadium, we believe it, it could be the Dodger Stadium. It's yet to be uh, finalised as that. But you imagine a race around the, the Dodger Stadium. That would be, that'd be one of the biggest events, I think, that Formula E's ever put on. And we, we got a bit of a flavour for it, didn't we, at Miami in season one, which um, was one of the, um, the frauter uh, races in terms of organisation, if you remember. <laughs> Li- literally putting blocks in on, on the, uh, on the, uh, uh, I, 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 the red. Yes. Came on. One one day, I would my, the whole of my Miami experience will be relayed on this uh, podcast. <laughs> but 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 for now, I'll just nod yep. politely in agreement. And, you you were uh, you were about towards as, wrapping this up. <laughs> you're about as healthy as I am now. With I do apologise for my voice because uh, I've got a terrible man flu at the moment. But I, I I should pull through. I should pull through. Yeah, Sam, you'll you'll be all right. You know, just no, nothing. Uh, a little bit of TLC and a couple of pints won't fix. Right. Um, I think that's it for this show. We will be back. I think we've got one more uh, this year with a special guest before we. Uh... We have, yeah, we, we, yeah. Let's not let's not um, spoil the surprise. But we've got one of the the more engaging, powerful figures of of formulary um, associated to a team, and somebody will be making his the race formulary podcast debut uh, just before Christmas. So yeah, that that'll be out before Christmas and uh, be perfect for the the Yuletide period. I think. Brilliant. Well, in the meantime, uh, the race obviously has plenty of uh, other podcasts to keep you entertained. Obviously, we've got Formula One where they'll be picking all of the bones out, whatever happens at Vegas this weekend. MotoGP, where it's going down to an absolutely thrilling uh, title finale. And uh, IndyCar, where similar to us, they've got an enormously long off-season period and filling it up with very interesting interviews. Uh, They had Marcus Ericsson on and uh, continues to do a great show there. So uh, check that out, as well as our fabulous Bring Back V10 archives. Thank you and goodbye. 